Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us the courage to live as you teach, to obey, to follow, to submit, and so live lives rooted in the rock, strong, stable, secure. Be honored in this place, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. Over the last five weeks, we have been making our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And today we come to the powerful conclusion where Jesus distills the whole sermon into a single question illustrated by a memorable parable. Looking out over the crowd spread along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I'm struck by his frustration, by his sense of disappointment, by his longing for these people to wake up from their stupor and listen. He doesn't seem surprised by their action or inconsistency, but he's exasperated, perhaps even angry. We all know what it's like when someone we love doesn't listen to us. When a good friend ignores your advice and makes a poor decision about a relationship. When a young child does the one thing he was told not to do and ends up in the ER. When your spouse seems to have stones in his or her ears. Earlier this week, Alicia and I had what you might call a vigorous discussion in which she told me in no uncertain terms that I wasn't listening to her and had not been listening to her for quite some time, in fact, about a particular topic. It's maddening when you say the same thing over and over. We'll need to get a blank look in response. It hurts to be ignored. We're all a little bit hard of hearing sometimes slow to act, stubborn in the face of necessary change. We do this with each other, we do this with God, and it has consequences. Those consequences aren't always immediate, but they are inevitable. To hear the words of Jesus and to walk away unchanged is to stride down the path of heartache and ultimately judgment. That's why at the end of this sermon, after months of being followed by the crowds, listened to and honored in public, Jesus calls out in exasperation to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
With these final words and then the parable that follows, Jesus ends his sermon by making a claim, by issuing a challenge, and by giving us a charge. We're going to look at each of these and why they matter for us today. So I hope you'll turn with me to page 863. It's where you can find our passage right at the end of Luke chapter 6. And we begin with Jesus' claim, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Although he has amassed a large group of followers, these are still relatively early days in Jesus' ministry. People know that he's from Nazareth, a tiny village in the hills, just 15 miles from the Sea of Galilee. But they've seen with their own eyes that he's not your normal hill country kid. He's a miracle worker a healer of diseases, a a man with power over demons who's unafraid to stand up to the religious leaders. He teaches with conviction and authority. But who is he exactly? Most of the people call him rabbi, which means teacher. But some had begun to call him Lord. And this is the title he chooses for himself as he brings his sermon to a close. The Greek word is kurios, and it crops up all over Luke's gospel as a title for Jesus. Now, in the language of the time, kurios could simply mean sir. It was an honorific used as a sign of respect, but it was also much more than that. Kurios meant master and lord, and it was a title used for God in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, not long before the time of Jesus, the translators had a challenge. By tradition and as an act of reverence, Jews neither spoke nor wrote the personal name of God, which we transliterate as Yahweh. Instead, every time the name of God appeared in the text, they substituted another word as a stand-in. And the word they chose for this in Greek was kurios, Lord. More than 6,000 times in the Old Testament, the word Lord is used for God. For the personal name of the living God who spoke the world into being, gave life to all things, and revealed the law to his people. For a bunch of first century Jews steeped in scripture from the time they'd been born, the term Lord meant God. It was as simple as that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's more than a question, it's a claim. And it's a monumental claim at that. Jesus accepts the title Lord. He accepts the title and he asks why they're not doing what he says. There's a, sense in which, there's a sense in which he's saying to them, look, if Moses were here, you would obey him. But someone far greater than Moses is here. The one who gave Moses the law, the Lord himself, is here. That's hard to overstate the significance of what Jesus is saying. He is claiming to be the ultimate source of authority. He is claiming to be God. And by doing this, Jesus isn't just making a claim for himself. He's making a claim on those who listen to him. We must listen and obey. What we call Jesus matters. 
ask people what they think of Jesus or who they think that Jesus is, and you'll get lots of similar-sounding answers. He was a great teacher, a moral example, a martyr, the embodiment of wisdom and kindness. But Jesus asks for more. He's not merely to be emulated because he's so kind and wise. He's to be obeyed because he is Lord. What we call him matters because it was what he called himself. If you're here today as a Christian, as someone who's put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then not only have you made a claim about Jesus, he has made a claim on you. To call him Lord is not just a nice way to show respect. It's a confession of faith, a statement of loyalty, and a pledge of allegiance. It's our recognition of the truth of the claim that he's made about himself. It's a commitment to listen and, yes, to obey. And all of this is what leads Jesus to issue a challenge And it's a challenge that echoes far beyond the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee. The challenge that he issues is this. Your behavior does not match what you say you believe. Can't you imagine there was a long pause after Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In the midst of that uncomfortable silence, I imagine lots of downcast eyes as people assess the truth of Jesus' word in their own lives, knowing that he was right and knowing that the challenge was for them. I think the same is true for us today. Most people, most people regardless of their faith, believe that integrity matters that how you live should flow out of what you believe, that there should be a connection between conviction and action. We agree with this in principle, but I want to ask you if you agree with this in practice. Just take a moment to look back over Luke 6 at all that Jesus has said. Return to the beginning of the sermon at verse 20 and consider the consequences of what he says. We say we believe in Jesus, but what we, do, do we do what he says? Do you expend more energy pursuing your own financial security or caring for the needs of others? Are you more concerned about the material threat posed by poverty or the spiritual dangers associated with accumulating wealth? When someone is unkind to you or quietly mocks you on social media, do you turn the other cheek or do you lash out in anger? Do you demand justice when you've been wronged or do you seek justice when you see that others have been wronged? Do you condemn the actions and attitudes of others or do you carefully examine your own? When we set our lives, our priorities, our spending, our daily preoccupations, our nightly routines, our language, our eating habits, our weekend schedules, when we set all of these things alongside Jesus' teaching, we can't help but see the inconsistencies. And these inconsistencies suggest 
that maybe we don't really believe what we say we believe. Now, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that deep down, many of us think that as long as we believe the right things, <clears throat> our actions don't really matter. As long as I know what's right, <clears throat> it's okay if I don't always do it. As long as I say that Jesus is Lord, it doesn't matter if sometimes I treat him as a passenger in my life rather than as master of my life. As long as we say the creed on Sunday, then our conduct Monday through Saturday is really secondary. Well, the whole point of Jesus' sermon on the plane is to convince us otherwise. Our actions matter. If our conduct doesn't match what we confess to believe, then our confession is a lie. It's not the gospel that's a lie, it's our lives that are a lie because our conduct tells the truth about our character. And here's the scary thing about a life like this. The opposite of integrity is not inconsistency. The opposite of integrity is disintegration coming apart at the seams, which is exactly what Jesus' parable at the end of the sermon illustrates. A life without integrity is a life that collapses completely in the face of God's judgment. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And remember, Jesus is talking here about the connection between what we believe and how we live. We build our lives like a man builds his home. And either we build an integrated life of godly obedience where our beliefs shape our behavior, or we build a disintegrated life that ultimately falls apart. <clears throat> and so Jesus ends his sermon with a charge. Build your house, your life, accordingly. Live what you believe do what he says. Now, I think it's natural for us as we read this parable to identify the floodwaters of the parable with the hardships of life. Tough times will come, Jesus seems to be saying, and if you want to navigate life well, you need to be ready. You need to be steady in your faith or you're going to falter. Now, this is true, but there's more to what Jesus is saying than this. In the Old Testament, a rising flood is far more often a symbol of judgment than it is of hardship. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, a sermon with lots of parallels to the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus tells a slightly different version of this parable in the context of teaching about ultimate judgment. He's not talking here about facing life's difficulties. He's talking about facing the judgment of God. That's the rising stream that floods and breaks against the house. 
Jesus is charging all who listen to build a life of integrity lest we collapse and disintegrate in the face of God's judgment. Have you ever had to get work done on your home or on your car? And after several estimates, you went with the one option that was significantly cheaper than the others? Now, you knew that the work probably wasn't going to be as good or that the parts would be substandard, but you couldn't resist the savings. Of course, six months later when your car broke down or the roof started leaking again, your foolishness was exposed. Why do we do this? We know what's going to happen. We want things to be cheap and easy. We want shortcuts quick fixes, life hacks. We want membership without monthly dues. We prefer same-day delivery to daily discipline, but that is not how you build a life of integrity. Integrity takes time. It's costly. You do make mistakes. You seek forgiveness. You try again. Cutting into bedrock in order to tie in a foundation is a costly, time-consuming endeavor. And there's just as much excavation involved as there is construction. You have to spend a lot of time just removing debris. But when you do this, when your behavior comes to match your beliefs, and your conduct is consistent with what you confess to be true, well, then the life you build it becomes part of the rock on which you laid the foundation. Strong, stable, and secure. We all long for stability and security. But we cannot conjure these things on our own. Ultimate security, it comes not from self-sufficiency, but from submission to Jesus. True stability, comes from obedience, not independence. And so we build our lives accordingly. At the end of this sermon, Jesus makes a claim. He's Lord. He affirms the confession of the people who've recognized that he's much more than a great teacher. It's an absolute claim with enormous consequences. Jesus then issues a challenge Your behavior doesn't match what you claim to believe. If I'm Lord, why don't you listen to me? He cuts straight to our hearts. It's not enough to call him Lord. We must obey him. Failure to do so leads to disaster, to the ultimate disintegration of our lives. And so he concludes with a charge. Live what you believe. Build a life of integrity, obey your Lord, and you will withstand every challenge, even the judgment of God. As we come to the end of Jesus' sermon, and thus the end of this sermon series, I want to step back and I want to ask a question that would have been echoing around everyone's mind that day at the Sea of Galilee. And the question is this, can Jesus really be trusted. His claim is absolute. His challenge is direct and deeply personal. His charge is life-consuming. Is he really worthy of all of that? Can we really trust him?
We'll take a look back at Luke's description of the setting of this sermon. Before Jesus starts preaching, it's here, before he ever speaks, that we begin to get an answer to this question. And it comes in the form of Jesus' action. His conduct, as it turns out, reveals his character. Here's what Luke tells us back in verses 17 to 19. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. Before his startling claim to be Lord, before his direct and challenging preaching, before his call to obedience, what did Jesus do? He came and he healed. Not only did he show his power to the people, he shared it with them. He poured out his grace. He demonstrated his kindness. He showed why he's worth following. Now, Jesus asks everything of us, our hearts, our minds, our wills, our actions, but he asks only because he has given all of himself for us. He came down from heaven and he stood with us as Lord of creation, but also as our equal, as a man. He humbled himself in order to offer healing, not just the temporary healing from disease that so many experienced that day by the Sea of Galilee, but the permanent healing of eternal salvation. And he did this all by laying down his life on the cross. So can Jesus be trusted? Yes, because he lived what he taught. He loved as he told us to love. He built his own house on the rock by obeying the will of God the Father. So we can trust him, we can listen to him, and we can obey. I want to take a moment before I pray and just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to invite you to ask the Lord Jesus what part of your life is disintegrated. Where might you be listening but not obeying? Calling him Lord but treating him as a passenger or a sidekick? And as you consider that, I'm going to encourage you to confess it, to ask for forgiveness, and to ask for strength to obey, to submit, to build your house on the rock. Lord Jesus, we all come before you as those who sometimes listen but don't always obey. We confess this. We ask for your forgiveness and we ask for eyes to see the inconsistencies, the disintegrities of our lives and the courage to build with integrity. Would you strengthen us that we might honor you and that we 
might live stable, secure, bedrock lives for eternity. Amen.